Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We experience reality all the time, yet we struggle to understand it. The first of New Scientist's essential guides does the job for you. Available in print or digital form. To check it out, go to shop.newscientist.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Penny Sarche, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us in the virtual pod today is New Scientist consultant and author Michael Brooks. Hello, Michael. Hi. Hi. Michael is also a podcast host of the brilliant Science-ish, which is definitely worth checking out. Coming up on the show, we have a mind-bending look at what happened when mathematicians decided to try to explain consciousness, which of course is one of the biggest mysteries in science. We've also got a study looking at which animals are best at holding their booze, a very weird robot made from a rat spine, and an amazing piece of work looking at using brain stimulation to treat severe anorexia. And this week's literary reference to look out for comes courtesy of Charlotte Bronte. But first, how is everyone sleeping? Any weird dreams, Penny? Um, Yeah, I have to say I'm sleeping pretty well, given the routine. Um, I've got more time to make sure I get a good night's sleep. But COVID-19 has definitely made its way into my dreams now. It it took a little Mm. while, but now I'm having sort of stressed dreams about getting too close to people and, and that kind of thing. All right. Michael, how's it going for you? I'd say the same. Yeah, I'm I'm having intense dreams. Not always bad things, but but very very vivid things going on. So obviously, I think you know my unconscious is is working overtime. Okay, well that's good because we're going to delve into that today. Uh, my sleep's been okay. I've had some sort of wakings up in the night, but my main problem is being woken up very early by my daughter, and she's been having bad dreams, and that's so that disrupts my sleep. So yeah, this week I've been talking to neuroscientists and psychologists about how the coronavirus crisis is affecting our sleep and dreams. And it turns out it's doing that in a couple of ways. First, our sleep patterns have changed, and this in itself changes how we dream. Uh, And then the anxiety and stress we're feeling changes the tone of our dreams too. I had a chat about this with Matt Walker. He's Professor of Neuroscience and Psychology at the University of Berkeley in California, and he's the author of the best-selling book, Why We Sleep. He's famously very strict about his sleep allowance, so I started by asking him if he was sleeping okay during the lockdown. <laughs> well, how has my sleep uh, changed during the lockdown? For the most part, it's remained fairly stable. I do stick to um, a quite rigorous sleep schedule. I go to bed at the same time, I wake up at the same time. And I think for many of us right now, during this COVID era, that can be a little bit tricky. So much of the structure of our lives has dissolved. Um, Going to work at the same time or getting kids up and getting them to school at the same time. Those anchors of timing have gone away from us. And for some people, that can mean that their sleep-wake regularity has also started to wander a little bit too. Some nights people will stay up a little later, some nights then they'll think, oh, I need to get to bed earlier. And 
they start moving back and forth in time and trying to maintain that regularity is actually really critical if you can. I think it's one of the best tips for maintaining good sleep at this time. One of the other things I've been trying to do is make sure that I get sufficient daylight. So uh, when I'm working at home here, I try to work next to a window. And if there is sunshine during that day, I really try to get that exposure of daylight. And I try to maintain that in the morning. And then I also try to implement some modest darkness at night. Um, So trying to turn down half of the lights in the last hour before bed um, and just giving the body what it expects, which is light during the day, darkness during the night and regularity each and every day. People generally aren't sleeping as much as they should. And that was one of the points you made in your book. Has the problem gotten worse with the coronavirus outbreak? I think this time of the COVID era is going to be interesting in terms of sleep. I think it's unclear at present whether overall people will be sleeping more. In truth, I I don't think it's ever quite as simple as that. And I suspect that there will be at least two different patterns in the data when we look at them. And probably a lot of the sleep tracking companies will report some of their data on this in the months ahead. I think there will be one cloud of data, one cluster of people for whom they do start to sleep longer. And finally, they may be sleeping at a length that is more optimal for their health. Then I think there will be another cloud of data that will be in the opposite direction where people are struggling with sleep, they're not sleeping enough. And I think that's very understandable. Um, Firstly, because of general anxiety around this time, anxiety is typically the enemy of sleep. Um, In fact, I think Charlotte Bronte, the writer, had a lovely saying which was that a ruffled mind makes for a restless pillow. And I think a lot of us who are struggling with that anxiety and stress right now are experiencing that. Of course, there are some people who are worried about their jobs and whether or not they will have a job and issues around salary. And then some people have actually lost their jobs. So I think there will be a cluster of individuals who we will see that have been sleeping significantly worse as a consequence. What about dreams? People are saying that vivid and disturbing dreams have been increasing. It is interesting that people seem to be reporting that they're dreaming more and also that they are having some more vivid dreams, um, including COVID-related dreams. How can we best understand this? Well, we don't know for certain right now, but I think science gives us a collection of tenable answers. The first is that for many people, because that schedule of waking up and commuting and going to work early and kids getting to school... Um, they're able to sleep in a little bit longer. And what many people may not realize is that your dream sleep, or what we call rapid eye movement sleep, um, is not distributed evenly across the night. In fact, the later into the morning that we sleep, the more REM sleep that we typically have. And so I think the first explanation for why overall people are dreaming a little bit more is because some people may be and a collection of a broad collection of people may be sleeping in a little bit later than they typically do and therefore they're getting a little bit more REM sleep and therefore they're having greater amounts of dreams as a consequence but that may not necessarily explain why people are dreaming a little bit more vividly or specifically about COVID. I think science has another answer to that. What we know is that dream sleep seems to provide a form of overnight therapy. It's almost a form of emotional first aid. 
And it seems to be that one of the functions of dreaming may be taking these emotional concerns that we're experiencing and just starting to process them and take the sharp edges off them, um, almost like a, a nocturnal soothing balm, so that we come back the next day and we feel a little better about those events and those emotional challenges. And so in that way, it's not time that heals all wounds, but it's time in dream sleep that seems to provide emotional convalescence. And so I think that's perhaps why people may be dreaming more specifically about COVID, because our emotional brains are trying to use this tool called sleep to help process and deal with that emotional concern. Do you have any advice for people experiencing bad dreams at the moment? In terms of tips or advice for sleep and perhaps what to think about difficult dreams or bad dreams. I think in terms of the bad dreams, firstly, understanding that it can be a very natural process. And in fact, it may actually be the brain's attempt to try to deal with the emotional issues and concerns that you're going through. And knowing that um, can hopefully help people if it doesn't help them feel better, at least they can try to understand why it's happening. Um, more generally, in terms of tips for trying to get better sleep, we've already spoken about regularity, and I typically try to give people reasons rather than just rules. I think people respond to reasons better than rules. The reason regularity is important is because your brain has a 24-hour clock inside of it, and it expects regularity and responds best under conditions of regularity, and that includes the regulation of your wake and sleep schedule. So try to give it that regularity that biologically it expects. The second is try to avoid alcohol. Try to avoid the nightcap in the evening. Many people think that having um, a nightcap in the evening can help them drift off faster. Alcohol can lead to you losing consciousness more quickly in the evening, but alcohol, unfortunately, will fragment your sleep. And as a consequence, you may wake up more throughout the night. And alcohol can also block your rapid eye movement sleep or dream sleep that we spoke about. The next tip is that if you are lying in bed awake for perhaps longer than 25 minutes or so, Stop trying. Give yourself a break and just understand it's okay. Go and do something different. In dim light, just read a book. Because with sleep, it's almost like trying to remember the name of someone. The harder that you try, the further away that you push it, the more unlikely it is that it will happen. And then only return to bed when you're sleepy. And there's no time limit for that. And here the analogy would be, um, you know, you would never perhaps sit at the dinner table waiting to get hungry. So why would you lie in bed waiting to get sleepy? And the answer is that you shouldn't just get out of bed and return to bed when you're sleepy. The final two tips of advice, if you are feeling that sleep is difficult, remove all clock faces from the bedroom, knowing that it's three o'clock in the morning or 4.30 in the morning. Um, is only going to make matters worse. It's not going to help you. So remove those clock faces as a trigger of anxiety. The final thing is try taking a hot bath before bed. There's something in sleep science called the warm bath effect. And many of you may think, well, when I'm warm and I'm toasty, that's why I fall asleep and stay asleep better. It's actually the opposite. When you get out of a bath, all of the blood has rushed to the surface of your skin. And when you get out, you get this huge radiation of heat from your body. So your core body temperature plummets. And we know that your body temperature and your brain need to drop their temperature in order to fall asleep and then stay asleep. And it's the reason that you will always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot. 
because too heart is taking you in the wrong direction for good sleep. And it's the same with the bath. When you get out the bath, your body cools down very quickly and it's that cooling that helps you fall asleep more easily. So I hope those help. That was Matt Walker. He's director of the Centre for Human Sleep Science at Berkeley. Thanks very much for your time, Matt. He made loads of great points in our chat, but one thing in particular that stood out for me is the emphasis that even bad dreams and nightmares are just signs of the brain doing its job. I also spoke this week with Russell Foster. He's director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at the University of Oxford. And he said, don't worry about your dreams. Take comfort in the fact that your brain is doing what it should be doing. So I'm going to try this on my daughter next time she has a bad dream and see if she can take comfort from that. And we'll tweet a link to Rowan's story on COVID dreams from our Twitter account at New Scientist Pod. That's our sci-fi alert. As you know, the sci-fi alert sounds when we have a story in the magazine that has already been written about or predicted in science fiction. Rowan. Yeah, this is the construction of a robot using 3D printed muscle. That's not all though, because instead of bothering to make an electrical control system for the muscle, the roboticists just used a bit of the spine of a rat, a part that usually controls the hind legs of the rat. So when they attached the spine to the muscle, the spine extended neurons into the muscle and began sending electrical signals through them that made the muscle contract. So it's a bit like kind of a spine robot or spinobot. It's controlled by adding or removing neurotransmitters from the system, just like the contractions in a living animal are controlled. I liked what our reporter Leah Crane said about it. It it brings a new meaning to the phrase lab rat. Yeah. But it all sounds a bit cruel on the rat. Is there a good reason for doing this kind of research? Yeah, the bioengineers are are not doing this for just nefarious sci-fi purposes. They've done it because it's really hard to study these neurons in living animals, which means we make slow progress understanding diseases such as ALS. Uh, That's Lou Gehrig's disease. That's the, the disease that Stephen Hawking had. The researchers do want to develop the work to use human tissue and eventually make prosthetics out of it. So these would be bioengineered, responsive, living prosthetics. Well, I think they'd be living, certainly they'd be biological prosthetics. But this is really early stage, isn't it? At the moment, the whole Spinobot is only six millimetres long. Yeah, it's very much just getting started. It's very hard to make them bigger because it's difficult to get nutrients into the tissues. As for the sci-fi link here... So actually, before I reveal my link, Michael, you talk and write a lot about sci-fi. What would you pick? The thing that came to mind for me was the um, 3D printed body in the fifth element, you know, when they, they just make an entire human. And the, and the idea of you can just bring out living tissue and, you know, it, it just all sort of assembles itself. So, yeah. But it, it, for some reason, it also made me think of the, the bits in Prometheus where, you know, you just get your body taken over by an alien. Yeah. So the idea of some, something's neurons just digging into my um, into my muscle tissue. Yeah, I'm not, not all for that, really. <laughs> My sci-fi link is Autonomous by Annalee Newitz. Annalee is a New Scientist columnist and their novel Autonomous is a really great look at robot-human relations in the near future and the issue of ownership and indenture and the blurring of lines of organic and inorganic intelligence. Reading that book really made me think differently about robots afterwards. Uh, The book doesn't feature a robot made of rat spines, but this rat work does also make me think about how our relationship with robots is going to change and become more and more intimate. 
Time out, we want to tell you about the benefits of a New Scientist subscription and a way to get a bargain deal. Yes, we cover some great stuff in this podcast, but we can only scrape the surface of all the amazing stuff you get with a subscription to New Scientist. The code POD20 gives you 20% off a subscription to New Scientist, and that gets you access to the full range of stuff we cover, from movie reviews to puzzles to features and breaking news, and hundreds of videos on topics such as people with superhuman abilities to black holes and time travel. It also gives you access to the legendary New Scientist archive, thousands of stories going back decades on pretty much anything you can think of. New Scientist is an essential resource at any time, but during lockdown and at a time of medical emergency, you're really going to want it. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for a 20% discount. Let's bring in our guest Michael Brooks now. Michael, you've written the cover story this week for New Scientist about a frankly startling piece of work looking at a different kind of attempt to explain consciousness. I should say that we could do an entire podcast series delving into this subject. So, (laughs) yeah, so we're just going to have to do our best to encapsulate it here. Maybe we, we should start by stating what people call the hard problem of consciousness. The problem is that we we could simply have a brain that could perceive things such as the smell of coffee or the colour of a rose. It's always those things that people mention. But our brain, instead of just perceiving it, it goes further. And those perceptions are accompanied by a conscious, subjective experience of the smell of the coffee or the redness of the rose. And people can't explain why this is or how the brain does it, right? Exactly. So we don't know how the kind of physical structure translates into our conscious experience. And ideally, you know, we'd like to get a theory of consciousness that does more than just wave its hands. Um, Ideally, we'd want it, like the rest of science, really, to a large degree, to be made of maths. So is all science made of maths or does it all have to be reducible to maths? Uh, I mean, it's a good question. I think I think it's actually a reasonable aim. So what we want is to build a model that makes testable predictions. And we do that with particle physics and genetics, chemistry. They all break down the phenomena involved into a numerical aspect that allows you to say, you know, under these circumstances, you'll get such and such. And then if that fits with your experimental results, you know that you've understood what your system is and how it works. But with consciousness, it's really just at the moment laid out using language and it's less precise and you can never really be confident that you've nailed down what's actually going on. Yeah, that's that's the thing that's really bugged me about a lot of the stuff that's written about consciousness. But there is a theory of consciousness that's much more mathematical than most, isn't there? Tell us about that. Yeah, so this is integrated information theory. IIT, and it's an attempt to reframe conscious experience in terms of the way information flows around the brain, uh, and you can reduce information to mathematics. And it's about how the information is exchanged between different subsystems of the brain. I mean, it's extremely complicated, but it comes down to sort of quantifying information flow and finding the maximum amount of crosstalk between these brain regions. And it's sort of mathematical, but it has come from experimental neuroscience. So it's not very easy to work with. So what's happened now is that two mathematicians, uh, one from Hanover and one from Oxford, have now put this framework of IIT onto a sounder logical footing. So mathematically logical. Uh, And they've basically laid out the mathematical foundations for how it puts together spaces of conscious experience and the physical information encoding systems and how they all interact. So um, the interesting thing about IIT 
which hasn't gone away with this work, is that it gives some pretty crazy results. So, for example, it seems to suggest that pretty much anything can be conscious, uh, which is pretty hard to swallow. So, I mean, with this math sort of approach, it'd be really good to pin this down a bit more. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's an understatement. Uh, but that, <laughs> well, that's the really startling thing, isn't it? Because in a nutshell, the, the theory calculates the flow of information in a system um, and the integration of this information and comes up with a value called phi. That's the, the Greek letter phi that we usually see in the names of college fraternities. And when phi is zero and there's no flow of, of information, consciousness is zero. But when phi is above zero, that system has a degree of consciousness, which means many things we don't consider conscious are, according to this theory, somehow conscious, right? Yeah. And I mean, it includes things like certain kinds of electronic circuits. And that obviously is quite difficult to swallow because you're sort of starting to think about things that we don't think of as conscious at like, all. Like my iPhone. But, yeah, exactly. So or, or it would be circuits maybe within your iPhone. And and one of the classic examples that's been done is actually error correcting circuits that happen that, that we use in DVD players. You know, so this kind of work's gone on. And it just seems to be saying now that with the new sort of mathematical additions, that this framework allows even more stuff to be conscious. So, so maybe even everything from electrons to atoms to the whole universe. So that's the idea of panpsychism, right? The idea that almost anything can be conscious. What, what does that mean? Yeah, well, so the, the people who argue for this, they don't say that these fundamental particles have feelings as such. But they do argue that they may have some semblance of consciousness, you know, some kind of fragmentary consciousness that could combine to generate the various levels of consciousness that are experienced by you know, birds and chimpanzees and us. So what they're saying is that this framework seems to allow even more stuff to be conscious. And we we might be able to sort of accelerate this out to you know electrons, everything. I really like that, actually, because for so long, we sort of thought we were special. Consciousness was either something you had or you didn't, and all other animals were automatons. But but that kind of fits a lot more with what kind of um, animal intelligence experiments are, are telling us. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we sort of you know have this sort of awareness, haven't we, for, for sort of maybe decades now that, that animals have intelligence, they're conscious of their own uh, needs and actions and you know, some of them sort of pass these consciousness tests by recognizing themselves in a mirror. So it's not surprising that we can spread out, you know, what we call conscious in, into the animal kingdom. But I think it is surprising that you can go beyond that. Yeah, it, it becomes really cosmic in some way. I was at a talk on the neuroscience of consciousness once. And afterwards, uh, a guy I was having a drink with was angry because the scientist had the temerity to suggest that consciousness arises in the brain. And <laughs> the, the guy, yeah, the guy I was having a drink said, "No, no, you know, it, it's more than that." So I think people are going to be very cross if you start to say you can encode the entire conscious experience into mathematics because they think you can't expect consciousness to succumb to a sort of mathematical or, or physical science approach. Yeah, and I mean that's quite a common view is that it's somehow something mystical. But I think we need to get away from that. I think we have to try this because otherwise everything is just too vague to make any progress. And no one's saying it's going to be easy or going to be quick, but we haven't really tried properly before. So IIT is the first attempt. And I think this is the sort of next level. And, um, you know, we have to remember that when we were back in the Renaissance, it was blasphemy to say that you could apply maths to the role of a dice because it was meant to be, you know, something divine and beyond calculation. 
And that that kind of failure of the imagination is what we want to avoid now. It's like nothing should be off limits. And if if we can try and use maths to sort of encode what it's like to smell a cup of coffee, then I think we should at least try. Yeah, I think the the philosophers might be a bit fed up because uh, if people can't get their heads around this incredibly complicated mathematics, that rules out entire careers for some people, right? <laughs> Well, I don't think we should be limiting ourselves just because of what philosophers like and don't like. But I think, you know, what we need now is for mathematicians who are interested in consciousness to pile in and start to play with this framework and see what can come out of it. And it might also help with our understanding of physics. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, we have these sort of issues in physics, especially with quantum physics, not really understanding certain things. So there's a a thing called the participatory universe problem, where it seems that quantum theory tells us that you need some kind of observation, uh, which implies some kind of conscious observation to make things happen in the quantum world. And so, you know, it's good, you know, to have a mathematical foundation that we might be able to link to quantum theory and see how consciousness or whether consciousness plays a role in quantum events. <laughs> okay, we'll uh, come back and just summarise that very simple problem in another podcast episode. Uh, what, <laughs> what, what's your hunch on where this is going to end up? Are you optimistic that we're ever going to be able to explain consciousness? So we're certainly sort of peeling back a few more layers of it now, even if we're not approaching the heart of it. So, so I think it's progress and uh, maybe we'll never get there, but you know, maybe we'll never get to lots of things. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we celebrate any kind of organism that we're feeling the love for. Penny, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky this week. And instead of choosing one animal, I thought we could celebrate a whole suite of animals that are able to hold their alcohol. Great, we'll allow that. What's the story? So there's this really interesting study that came out this week that has been looking across mammals to work out which are capable of metabolizing alcohol. They found that those of us who regularly eat fruit or nectar, uh, including humans, chimps, gorillas, but also bats, have a better version of an enzyme that helps break down the intoxicating chemicals that alcohol forms in our body. The evolutionary explanation here is that the sugars in fruit and nectar often become fermented, naturally producing alcohol. So there will have been a selection pressure for millions of years on those of us who regularly eat fruit to adapt so that our favourite foods don't make us drunk. Interestingly, the same gene has also become less effective in some animals that never or only rarely eat fruit or nectar, seemingly because they've been under little selection pressure to preserve this gene from mutations. I'm tempted to ask why there's selection to stop animals getting drunk when so many mammals like it, especially humans, uh, but I won't ask that. But instead, tell us which animals have evolved to be worse at holding their booze? Well, I think that's a good point, actually. And and of course, we do still get drunk. Humans are completely capable of it. But our version of the enzyme means that we can take more alcohol first before we do, which which means we Mm. can enjoy the experience too. But the most interesting of the alcohol lightweights is the elephants. There's actually been a debate going on for rather a long time about this idea of drunken elephants going on the rampage in places. Some studies have suggested that reports of this happening can't be true, as the animals would never be able to consume enough fermented fruit to get physically drunk. But this new study adds to evidence that it may be possible. As one researcher we spoke to said, this tantalising question remains a priority for future research. (laughs) Yep, that's the sort of research we can all raise a glass to. Yeah, cheers. 
Next up, Penny, you've got a story about a drastic but possibly very hopeful treatment for anorexia. That's right. This is the news that implanting electrical devices into the brain appears to have helped some women with severe anorexia return to a healthy weight and experience less anxiety and depression. Wow. So that's having electrodes put right into your brain. So that's quite an extreme treatment, isn't it, for anorexia? Yeah, I initially thought so too. But our Sydney reporter, Alice Klein, told me that for some people, a treatment this extreme could still be preferable to the alternative. About one in five people with anorexia nervosa die of the illness, and there really aren't that many options for treating the condition. Right, yeah. When you put it like that, it makes sense. It's like how people with extreme epilepsy sometimes get brain implants, as we mentioned the other week on the podcast. So how does the treatment work? The idea is that electrically stimulating a particular part of the brain might help. The region that they're looking at is called the nucleus accumbens, which helps us learn from our experiences. And there's evidence that this bit of the brain seems to be connected differently to other brain regions in people who have anorexia. So the hypothesis is that using electricity to disrupt the activity of this region in people who have the condition might help in some way. Okay, and and do we know how effective it is? Yeah, so it's now been tested in a small trial involving 28 women. All these women had a three-year history of anorexia and hadn't improved following standard treatments. Between them, they had an average body mass index of 13. So as a reminder, a BMI of of less than 18.5 is is what would normally be considered underweight. Each of the women had electrodes put into the nucleus accumbens uh, regions on on both sides of their brain. And these electrodes were then connected to a battery that was inserted beneath each woman's collarbone. And over the next two years, the women's average BMI rose to 18 and almost half the women reached 18.5 or above. Also, uh, they also reported less anxiety and depression. Okay, so they all the women had implants. So that means there wasn't a placebo group. Unfortunately not. So so that's one issue with this small trial. Uh, as a result, we can't really say for sure whether the beneficial effects might just have been because the woman felt confident that the treatment was helping them in some way. And, and that leads to the placebo effect. Although these women had all not improved on other kinds of treatment. So that, that's worth noting. But future studies are hoping to address this question. So obviously, um, it would be perhaps a little unethical to give you brain surgery, but not actually give you the implant. So that would be a sort of sham treatment. But one way of of placebo controlling this would be to not turn the battery on for the first few months in some women, because they can't actually tell when the stimulation's happening. And and that might give a clue of, of what's placebo effect and what's not. So assuming that it checks out, could this really become a a viable treatment for anorexia? It's not unthinkable. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric condition. So there is a real need for treatments. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that before. And it's quite shocking when you put it like that, that it's got the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric condition. Yes. So while it feels uh, really quite extreme to have electrodes implanted in your brain, we do already do this for a number of other conditions, including Parkinson's and epilepsy, as you said. Thanks, Penny. That's all for this week. Thanks also to our guest, Michael Brooks. And thanks to you for listening. 
Just a reminder, you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. And there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20. Yes, POD20 at checkout gets you your subscription discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. Our latest interview is with Rebecca Shaw, Chief Scientist of WWF. Do get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcasts at newscientist.com and let us know how are things for you at this moment in the time of social distancing. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye and take care. Goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.